So hi and welcome to What the Fuck Are British Values. Uh, my name is Halima and I'm just going to say a few short words about decolonising our minds. Um, so decolonising our minds was founded by a group of BME students in SOAS and outside of SOAS and we hope to amplify the scholarship of decoloniality in both institutions and in communities through events which range from discussions to evenings of poetry. Um, so we recently held some meet and greets and are looking to involve as many people as possible. So if you have any event or project in mind you'd like to put in or put on in your community or in your institution, um, we'd love to support it. Um, and also if you'd like to be directly involved, um, please leave your email with one of our group members. They'll be outside somewhere. Um, and we're going to be starting holding, we're going to start holding monthly meetings. Um, so this evening's discussion ties into a lot of what the government are initiating in regards to the prevent agenda and British values um, is a term coined to look at the ways which the government can integrate people and cultures predominantly of black, minority and ethnic communities. So integrationist, pol sorry, integra integrationist policies originate from the colonial thought and are ways for the state to assimilate communities considered too unruly in their eyes. Um, so I'm not going to take up too much of your time. I'm just going to introduce Kieran and Rahul. So Kieran Yates is a freelance writer on music and politics for Enemy, the Metro and Dazed and Confused. She's the co-author of Generation Vex and is the creator and the editor of the zine British Values, which seeks to rewrite the narrative of what British values are by passing our AUX school over to taxi drivers, revisiting our school lunchboxes, and generally shining the spotlight on the lives and experiences of non-native Brits. And the chair for this evening is Rahul Verma. Sorry. Um, Rahul Verma is an experienced freelance journalist um, covering arts and culture, social affairs, and South Asia for outlets currently including Vice, UK, The Guardian, New Statesman, BBC Radio 4, and Mixmag. Rahul has a keen interest in subcultures, grassroots movements, and marginal voices, and has worked extensively with young people in a media training capacity through Live Magazine, Rich Mix, and The Roundhouse. Rahul completed his MA in South Asian Area Studies at SOAS in September 2013. Um, so there's going to be a discussion tonight, and lastly, there's going to be a Q&A with two standing mics on either side of the stairwell for people to queue up and ask questions. Um, I just wanted to mention something about a really great campaign happening at SOAS called uh, Democratize SOAS. Um, so the main aim is to strengthen uh, participation and running of our university. And so if there are any SOAS students or anyone who works at SOAS, there's going to be a stall outside in which there's a really important petition that you can go out and sign. Um, so yeah, I guess I hope you really enjoyed tonight. Um, hope to see you guys at our upcoming events. So yeah, have a good evening. Bye. <laughs> Hello. Thanks, Halima, for the introduction and decolonising our minds for the uh, inviting Kieran and I to do this. And a big thank you to you all for um, coming. I thought um, it might be useful for me to explain how Kieran and I know each other, because that should sort of help frame our conversation. Um, we've known each other for around five or six years, I'd say. Is that right? Um, initially in a mentor-mentee capacity, um, but over the years we've become firm friends um, who occasionally work together. Um, but yeah, we probably spend more time gossiping about being brown journalists in a, a mainstream media space. Um, so yeah, just in terms of the format of uh, what we're gonna do, so Kieran and I are gonna be in conversation for around half an hour. 
and then we'll open it up to questions for a similar amount of time. I think Kieran sort of expressed that we're just as interested in what you guys have to say and what you feel about British values um, and this brilliant magazines as um, what we have to say. So yeah, that's sort of what we'll do. So just to get the ball rolling, Kieran, um, could you explain some of your feelings around the term British values? Yes. Um, well, uh, the usage of the term this year really, as I'm sure uh, many of us in the room have been really sensitive to, is the way that it's, uh, the term has been used politically and socially and as a result um, culturally in quite a sinister way in a number of different ways. And um, I think that seeing those play out has been, for me, really kind of emotional, seeing the way that uh, people like David Cameron have used the term when he was talking about radicalization, specifically in his landmark speech um, this summer when he talked about his five-year plan as a way to you know, tackle the issue of radicalization and this huge problem of um, needing to make sure that we are instilling a sense of what it means to be British in schools and the way that that proposal was then going to be part of a curriculum and it was going to be part of the everyday of a new generation um, of voices who, had, who were going to learn very early on that British values was something that they had to pledge an allegiance to if they were going to be taken seriously or accepted by the wider community. Um, as somebody who has grown up in uh, Britain, but is a woman of colour from um, Punjabi, India side, and uh, kind of really noticed that keenly, I think that there's... There's always going to be a very emotional reaction to how you feel about that, basically. So when you're hearing about uh, having to prove your um, economic contribution as a migrant, when you're talking about immigrant communities who are being silenced and censored, when you're talking about you know, the threat of radicalization being really powerful in terms of fear-mongering, and all of this is under the umbrella of pledging your allegiance to British values, it seemed like uh, a really perfect way to respond in um, my own way, which was using the zine and Twitter. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I mean, um, I guess beyond some of the areas that you've spoken about, there's the sort of dimension of it now being introduced into schools, is that right? Um, so I guess it's sort of quite pervasive, and I guess what sort of stands out to me is that it's, um, it appears to be sort of a tool or an instrument to sort of, you know, divide people well, yeah, I mean, in the same way that um, Nigel Farage was really successful in shifting the national conversation towards um, having a very renewed fear about the numbers of immigrants, of the threat of refugees coming in, British values and the way that the usage has been um, played out across uh, mainstream media has had a similar effect. So it means that what is happening and what is being said politically has a really sinister effect in our everyday lives. And I think that that example specifically about talking about its usage in schools and promoting um, a sense of British values really means um, having, to be, having to watch what you say, having to be um, censored, having to kind of watch your backs, having to not mention certain words in front of your teacher. And I think that as soon as you see that as a normal way of living or a normal classroom culture, it's really dangerous and you need people to flag that up. Absolutely. I mean, it's a very, very dangerous sort of uh, shift and sort of we're getting into the realms of talking about policing of public culture, aren't we? Um, I think 
Obviously, I'm very interested in this space as well and just thought it's useful to highlight that it was actually Tony Blair that first used this term mm -hmm. in 2006 mm -hmm. um, after 7-7. Um, and generally, when you hear the terms British values used by politicians, it tends to be in relation to uh, the Muslim community and lack of integration um, and that kind of rhetoric. Um, so yeah, I just thought I'd point that out. And it's just a really effective way of being very divisive immediately. Um, and one of the things that we've discussed quite often and one of the things I've written about quite a lot is the idea that the only people that are really asked to pledge their British values are people that look like they're not inherently British, which basically means if you're, if you're not white, if you're a person of colour, then you're having to prove that you're a British citizen, that you deserve to be here, that you've made a contribution. Yeah, absolutely. It would seem that it's sort of this coded, coded them and us, um, Indigenous Brits, people of colour. Um, and it's actually quite a sophisticated sort of way of highlighting that difference. But yeah, just to sort of move things on. So how did that, those sort of feelings or your awareness around those terms, British values, sort of evolve into, yeah, this fantastic magazine that we've got? Um, I think it was uh, off the back of a lot of conversations and also using what you know um, in your own arsenal to try and make your voice heard. So as a journalist who was writing about um, various different issues, to me there seemed like a very distinct way to respond to that and that was to, you know, make funny jokes and, you know, champion heroes like Zayn Malik and, you know, make him a page three heartthrob because that's, you know, that, that in, in my circle was like, you know, those are the kind of jokes that um, really resonate because what we were talking about uh, just now in a post 9-11 culture, what happened, especially to um, people that look like me was that there was a very monocultural brown identity that stripped any kind of nuance um, and meant that if you were brown, you were someone to be feared. And it meant that there was no lack of visibility in the mainstream. There was no kind of cool capital attached to being brown. And it felt like I wanted to create a space where there were all these kind of, you know, funny nuanced jokes and, you know, making kind of, and social commentary making those points and when I was pitching them to editors they just rejected them all <laughs> and so I wanted to uh, just make something for myself where I just thought it would work. I mean just to sort of tease that out a little bit I think that's something that's really really quite interesting that um, you know through not being able to um, get these stories placed in mainstream media you went out and um, did it yourself, DIY culture, you know, we talked about grime a little bit earlier, you know, just creating something and, you know, I think that's um, something really, really, really um, important and powerful. Yeah, I think that um, we know in, in all of our communities, you know, there is this idea of, you know, getting it or not getting it, um, which, you know, we discussed a lot, the idea of, you know, some people understand why the point you're making is funny. Some people understand why when you flag up a picture of the front cover of the Evening Standards, you know, talking about, you know, migrants ruining British holidaymakers' um, holiday, wherever, that's like a funny joke, but that's also, it has a real serious impetus. And I think that when it's really frustrating as a journalist, wanting to pitch those stories and wanting to write something that isn't a straight political comment piece for the New Statesman, and saying, you know, there's a, there's a way that we can talk about this. And uh, getting that rejected is, 
is sort of uh, it's emotional. The reason that um, we talk about these things is not because we're just angry off the back. It's because something's happened emotionally that's made us find our voice about something. It's not that we're really well read in necessarily in the politics of something. It's not necessarily that you know we're taking a stand and we want to be you know, uh, identified as activists, the first point of call is always feeling emotional about something. And when I hear that, when I hear someone talking about pledging your allegiance or having a divisive culture or saying that you need to prove um, whatever from all these tabloids or headlines, it makes me feel emotional. And you just do what you can. And I think for me, it was about bringing lots of people I admired together and bringing their stories into one place. Yeah, I think um, there's a couple of things just to pick up on there. I think uh, a little bit earlier you talked about sort of bringing to life or creating a space of everyday conversations, which, you know, I think British Values does brilliantly because it's full of the kind of, you know, just sort of knockabout sort of um, conversations that we might have around stuff that's going on in the media. Um, and to see that reflected in a magazine is absolutely brilliant. But then also just... You're t talking very um, sort of articulately about um, emotions and that channeling of emotions into something. Because um, I guess we've all had moments where you're just sort of shouting at the TV or the radio at the latest bit of sort of, you know, British values related rhetoric that's being spewed at you. Um, but it also seems that it's quite empowering to sort of channel that in some way. And certainly for me, being involved and writing a piece for it and sort of being aware of other people involved in it. There's just a really sort of positive um, sense of freedom about doing that. Well, there's an alternative to anger. And I think that that's the point. And, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of people in the room maybe have battled against the idea of being an angry brown girl, an angry black girl, or, you know, this kind of moniker that exists um, that you feel like sometimes you have to fight against. And it's, you know, this for me was just saying that there's alternatives. There's, you know, whenever I felt really frustrated by something, there's like something I want to say about it. There's like, oh, I'm having a really great, like a great conversation with an Uber driver who's reviewing the new Skepta track. That would make a really good piece. Or, you know, talking, uh, the piece that Rahul wrote was really great about UK citizenship and really breaking down what it meant to be a UK citizen and how easy that kind of citizenship um, can get stripped from you. So kind of using all of those elements of our lived experience uh, and putting it into one place, I think, was just important to make that point. It's not just, it's not every day, be angry. Absolutely. Um, I think we're getting towards the actual magazine itself. And, um, you know, do you want to talk to us about some of the, the sort of stories within the magazine and how they came into being? And Yeah. Um, I think I probably just want to preempt anything I say about uh, the tone of, of British values with sort of a, a, a kind of a well-deserved gush about goodness gracious me, because <laughs> that was just a really huge influence for me, and I just, uh, I, I loved it, and I wanted this to reflect what that was about. I wanted it to reflect the kind of, the fact that they were making really funny, nuanced, satirical jokes in a way that even white people got, as my mum said at the time and um, you know having you know having a token white person and how important that was um, about making a point about diversity and you know 
I think that the way that that was just done in you know comedy was such a brilliant way of tackling loads of issues that even at the time I didn't realize how powerful they were and then when I like YouTube them in later years I was like wow that was like such a moment for me anyway uh, so yeah that was kind of the tone that I was trying to do it was basically just trying to do like a bit of a goodness gracious me in print um, but reflecting what was happening at the moment. So some of my favorite pieces is a piece about lunchboxes, which is people recreating the lunchboxes that they had when they were in school um, from various immigrant communities. From, uh, one was from a, a Japanese boy who lived in Hertfordshire and was the only Japanese boy for miles and miles around and talking about his um, lunchbox. And the feature is called, uh, what's that? Um, <laughs> which uh, I guess resonates with a lot of people. And I wanted to shoot it in a really kind of beautiful, uh, styled way because, you know, quite often we don't see our food um, celebrated in that way or given that same kind of cultural capital. In the same way that one of the, one of the features in, is an interior design special, and it's like an, a look at um, an Iranian living room in a way that I wanted to look at uh, different living rooms from immigrant communities because I'd read all those Vogue homes and the L decorations and they never looked like what I had grown up looking at. Um, and I just thought that was beautiful, you know, I'm Indian and that gold and black tissue box is like a beautiful part of my life. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, I think that being able to create a space for people that saw that and felt emotion towards it but also found it funny was great. And also there's a point to be made about really being invited into people's intimate spaces, you know, letting someone into their living room. That's our cultural capital. We have access into uh, storytelling and that has to be championed and we have to have confidence about that when we're in our work, working lives to be able to say, that is what I'm good at. Give me an opportunity to do it. Yeah, I think um, the lunchbox piece really resonates with lots of people and I think, I can't quite remember the specifics of it, but there's one guy who talks about, is he Nigerian? He talks about, you know, how difficult it was at school with this food and now, of course, everyone's paying eight quid for it at street food markets and whatnot. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. And also pop-up culture, that the idea that, you know, uh, food from immigrant communities is something that has just popped up. When <laughs> we, when we've been here for a minute. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I guess with lots of this, whether it's the, the living room stuff that really resonated or the lunchbox, um, for me, Nikesh's piece around comic book heroes um, and finding some sort of escapism and representation through that was really powerful. And yeah, this is, I guess, what we're talking about, isn't it? It's British values in the magazine sense. It's a space of representation that doesn't really exist in that uh, broader capacity beyond sort of the token things that you get on mainstream within mainstream media yeah uh, and I think that um, yeah it's, it's about not not seeing yourself it's basically you know something that you're you're always trying to counteract because it's really difficult if, uh, if you can't see yourself to legitimize your place in that environment because there isn't a blueprint for it and so uh, the, you know one of the reasons that I did Zane is a page three Heartthrob, um, other than him being like the piffiest brown boy in Britain, is because um, when there was that whole, you know, no more page three stuff going on, um, you know, and I was, I was really, you know, aware of, of the debate and, you know, um, how feminists were talking about it, but I was really like, wow, there's, but there's no brown girls on page three. And so even though I really understood the debate, I was really like, you know, none of the nipples that you're trying to cover are brown ones. 
And it was like, you know, this real, it was just like an interesting conversation, which obviously leads us into talking about intersectional feminism and the importance of um, allowing lots of different voices. But it was just, for me, it was just such a, a clear response. And all of these things um, that, we've, that we've talked about, when, when, I've talked about the, when I've talked to the writers about pitching ideas for the next issue, they're all just like so excited because they're, they're all the, thing, the conversations that they're having already. So, yeah, that, that feels good, I think. Absolutely. I mean, I think another one of the most powerful ones for me was just um, the sex worker talking about her experiences as a person of colour and just what an amazing sort of lens or prism through which to sort of, um, yeah, explore, you know, some of the deep-rooted sort of attitudes that exist um, around us. Um, yeah, so she's a, a South Asian sex worker um, who's writing about her experiences firsthand and... Yeah, just, just the kind of things that I guess I wouldn't think about because I don't occupy that space about, you know, guys asking, you know, about like if she smells like curry because they've got a curry fetish or, you know, she's Gujarati and people like speaking Hindi to her and her being like, lol, don't understand what you're saying. Um, that kind of stuff is really good because, you know, we've all had a like, that's not me moment when people have said, you know, salam alaikum to me and I'm like, oh, wrong one, yeah. or that kind of thing. <laughs> Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, or shall we talk a little bit about, the kind of, yeah, this is a DIY project and there's something very powerful in that and people might be interested in how you go about putting together a, a magazine, um, so how it came together beyond sort of the content. Um, there's obviously um, your amazing designer as well. Yeah, um, well, he, yeah, he was just really incredible. Um, he is a New York-based Pakistani working with a British-based Indian, so uh, it can be done. And uh, it, yeah, he was, he was really amazing because he was someone uh, who, um, I, you know, I had lots of ideas about wanting to do um, a fanzine. I'm not the most sophisticated visual thinker. I knew that that was something that I was really going to struggle with. I had loads of ideas. Um, I'd spoken to great journalists like Rahul about, you know, how I would make those ideas become a reality, how I'd create features and regulars, whatever, whatever. But I didn't know how I was going to make that really come to life. And one of the most powerful things for me was approaching Ahmad Ilyas, who's the designer on Twitter, and talking through some of the things that I was feeling. And him, you know, being a Pakistani guy, born and bred in New York, and completely getting it, just completely understanding from his perspective all the things and all the frustrations that I was feeling and understanding all the in-jokes and it just really you know it really cemented to me that these are feelings that are universal and that transatlantic understanding was for me just saying yeah you know we are often called minorities but on the earth we're not you know um but yeah um <laughs> aside from that it was a sort of a laborious process of me trying to get people who were very long to write for me <laughs> and, and then like uh, so I, I came up with a list of ideas, commissioned them to people who I thought would be really good. They wrote the pieces, they sent them back to me, I edited them. Then I worked with um, Ahmad uh, to work out how they would look visually on the page. Um, and then just uh, used my savings and printed them and hoped people would buy them. Yeah, so um, let's be clear, Kieran fronted a sizable amount of money to get this printed and made. Um, everyone worked for free. So, you know, I guess everyone was very invested in 
um, what British Values is about, and yourself. Um, so yeah, labour of love all round. Um, but you did manage to get some advertising. Yeah. Um, so there's only uh, two adverts because I, well, at first I didn't want there to be any adverts, and then I didn't have any money, and so I thought there was someone, there were some people I needed to approach, and the only people that I wanted to approach were um, Jolene who are a hair bleaching company because I use them all the time. So they're people that I understand because <laughs> I'm a hairy Asian. And, uh, you know, that's, that was like really part of my experience. Um, another one I wanted to use was maybe Basmati Rice, but I didn't have a good email address for them. And um, the other one was uh, Tyabs, which is one of my favorite Indian restaurants in London. Uh, it's in Whitechapel, you guys should go. And I... I basically just was like, well, they're, they're the only like, brands that I really like. And then on the other side of that um, was, you know, as, as an Asian who's rooted in black culture was, I was thinking about who I really liked and there was a label, a grime label called Butters um, that I really liked and I thought maybe I could approach them. I was quite interested in, in maybe talking to someone like NTS because they'd done a lot of uh, radio programming of people uh, from, you know, immigrant communities doing interesting music and then maybe Radar Radio because they were, um, you know, sort of underground doing interesting work that I really liked. They do a show called BBC Asian Network, which I recommend you guys all check out, which was really good. Anyway, in the end, I went to Tyabs and they gave me um, some money for a half page, um, which was really funny because, you know, they didn't really get what I was doing, but they just wanted to support me. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, trying to explain to a Desi uncle why uh, putting Theresa May in a hijab was like a good joke or was satire was like, you know, interesting. But <laughs> luckily they got it. Um, I didn't tell them about Zane. Um, <laughs> uh, but they were all right in the end. They were all right. Um, and then Radar, because that was, you know, that was part of my experience of, you know, someone who was living in London and someone who's invested in uh, radio culture and music and urban music specifically. Um, so they just felt like a good representation of probably most of our uh, lived experience in London, but definitely mine, personally. Was there also a moment when there was a realisation that the Tyabs advert was next to the sex, sex <laughs> worker piece? Well, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not the best editor in the world, so that wasn't something that I really thought about until you plugged it up, so thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, and it just, yeah, it was like... An, you know, a consideration that I made after the fact. But it was also about, you know, understanding the kind of brands that you're happy to work with. And, you know, during the process of this, you know, various sports brands and um, energy drink brands have got in touch with me, you know, maybe funding it. And, and I was like, no, because you don't, you know, I'm not completely confident that you would understand what it's about. And I think that that's about, you know, just, just having a really distinct idea of the kind of brands that you're happy to co-sign what you're doing, even if you're making a loss, which I am. But it's about, you know, just kind of sticking to your guns and knowing when to say no, I think. Absolutely. I think that's something that's really, really interesting and quite powerful just in terms of it being a safe space, a safe space for people to express themselves, um, people of colour to express themselves. And, um, you know brands that don't fit within that sort of world, um, not being part of that world, as it were. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's a safe space, but it's also um, an opportunity for people who haven't um, lived that same experience or come from a completely different perspective to, to, to kind of have a window into it. 
And I think, like, for me, like, I hadn't, I hadn't seen a lot of Iranian living rooms, um, for example. And for me, that was, like, really interesting to be like, oh, okay, like, I see. That's, you know, there's, that's your equivalent, you know? The, like, the rugs on the wall, like, you know, whatever. That was kind of really amazing to me. And I think that, you know, if you want to engage in difference, so that's, this is like one of many good opportunities for you to do that. And I would never work with a brand who didn't feel the same. Sure, sure. So how many copies have you sold to date? Um, so I did, the th I did a, just a really small print run of 300 um, for the first print edition with all the typos in it. Um, and <laughs> um, sorry, it's my nails. And I, was, I sold out of that. And, and then I did a, another reprint of another 300, and so I've just done 100 of those, so I've got 200 left, so buy them. <laughs> yeah, they're available outside, as I understand, so please, yeah, this is yeah. a DIY labour of love. Um, and if there's anyone out there that might be a philanthropist or benevolent and wish to um, <laughs> back here in. <laughs> um, yeah. And did you have to think about anything in terms of legal considerations or...? Um, well, when I was talking to Tyabs, one of the things that they were most sensitive about was, um, you know, in all seriousness, was the UK Border Agency. And they were saying, you know, it's, you know, we're really conscious that we don't want to, you know, be affiliated with something which potentially could get us into trouble because that's something that we feel very keenly. You know, I know that we've discussed quite a lot about, you know, restaurants across London who are in you know, real threat of the, you know, the, the sinister nature of things that the UK Border Agency can do and shutting down businesses and causing, you know, a, a real sense of employing this idea of British values and if you don't ascribe to it, having the power to make sure that you understand who has the power and who doesn't. And so that was, that was, um, Im that was important for me to realise that because that's not something that I've ever had to consider. You know, I've never been shook of the border agency like coming for me in that way mm. and speaking to someone who had was really important but also yeah that you know there was like you know legal issues of like certain jokes and you know one of the things that i wanted to do was um like hammering where which is like a, a face of a ham that looked like david cameron uh, saying funny things uh, but i still didn't know if that was all right but now i wish i did because that would have been so timely uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so you know, there were, there were kind of the politics side of things, which I wasn't 100% sure of. I got a bit of a legal eye to look over it, which was nice, which was just again, just a friend who was happy to help out for free. Um, and that's something that I'll, you know, now I've exercised that muscle, I'll be aware of it next time. Yeah, I think um, just to sort of tease it out a little bit, there's just something really amazing in sort of pulling, pulling people around you together to making use of all your expertise and skills and people giving up their time. I'm sure everyone, you know, uh, did that willingly and, um, yeah. In a culture of censorship as well, and increasing censorship, you know, um, probably, the, like, the, the most recent example maybe was, you know, the homegrown uh, play that was shut down by the National Youth Theatre, um, you know, which was talking about radicalisation and, you know, was shut down because it was potentially... Um, seen as a, as a problem, basically. And I think that, you know, f to be able to reach out to, you know, uh, people of colour who are potentially being creative under a, a kind of cultural fabric of censorship is really brave and really important, and it means that you, you really want to say something. 
Sure. And um, what kind of feedback have you received? Um, yeah, people like it. I mean, uh, mostly people have said that they, you know, in, in Desi homes especially, that they, they can't read it in front of their parents, which has been like funny and it was like it was like funny to me because I was like that's not really a consideration that you made but of course you don't want your mum looking at a sex worker where there's like you know like 20 pairs of tits in the background but it was yeah that was like you know that was important to me to be like people uh, who, who I was making that for understood it and got it and liked it and supported it and then outside of that you know people who I thought maybe wouldn't, you know, lots of, you know, mainstream broadsheet editors were getting in touch saying, wow, this is really great. You know, this is, a, this is a really new look. And for me, I just wanted this to be a bit of a recruitment tool to say there's no excuse that we don't have really excellent uh, minority writers because, you know, it, it's been really easy for me to just fill up a magazine and say, like, these are the people who are saying really great stories, like, these are the people you should be commissioning. And whenever there's a criticism of somebody writing about you know, the Muslim experience or the Sikh experience or the South Asian or, you know, whatever experience or, you know, the Indian, African, West Indian experience, whatever. Um, the justification is usually like, we don't really know people in our network. You know, black writers don't want to write for us. For, we don't understand why. Um, and using this as a recruitment tool to say, well, no, that, that's not the case. And here is a selection of really great writers. This is who you should be using. What we've got to do is work a bit harder. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The proof is right there in front of us. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess people might not be aware this talk in the magazine was in the Guardian Guide on Saturday. Uh, Saturday just gone, so it's previewed within that. So, I mean, I think what's sort of quite interested in is how what starts off as a tiny little conversation and an idea turns into a magazine and then that magazine begins to sort of punch through into sort of the mainstream media um, and that's just a very amazing thing something you should be immensely proud of but it's also just a great example of you know these everyday conversations that we have um, and channeling that sort of emotion that we were talking about um, and filtering into uh, editorial meetings you know where that conversation is suddenly a new one where editors are going like, should we get some minority writers to, to talk about this? Um, and as someone who's occupied a lot of those uh, editorial meetings before, that's not something that's ever really flagged up, you know, unless you, you're feeling alone and making that point. And I hope that that is, you know, that even in a really tiny way, that just is a bit of its legacy, is that people so suddenly start saying like, oh, maybe, uh, you know, getting a South Asian person to write about South Asian issues might be a good idea. Absolutely. I guess it's this sort of sense of um, there might be a degree of frustration within mainstream media and representation and the kind of stories that they cover. Um, but it does seem like, certainly with the example of British values, that it's possible to sort of um, effect change from the bottom upwards mm -hmm. because it's starting to filter upwards and those conversations are happening those excuses about there not being the writers out there or etc well you know they've got British values in front of them and they can see that there are those writers out there and these all these amazing amazing perspectives and stories and jokes or whatever it might be um, and that they're lacking for not representing those mm -hmm. and 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 if they do represent them not representing them with um, plurality or nuance and I think that, you know, for a long time, when I was reading a lot of, um, you know, sort of um, writers from immigrant communities, 
they were really pigeonholed and it was really difficult for them to write about things that because it was too niche and you know a lot of the time a lot of the things that I was pitching were you know too niche um, they didn't have mainstream appeal and I think that obviously so, you know social media and activism and you know increased spaces to have those conversations has meant that we have made the point that our experiences are universal and they're not too niche and if you think that then we'll show you different and will that be through issue two is it will there be an issue two yes i'm working on issue two now um so pitch ideas to me please um and yeah that's you know that's exactly the same thing it's just like the process has been the same it's about um, harnessing a lot of the people who have reached out to me wanting to write or just wanting to be part of um, a space where people are having these kind of conversations regularly um, and feeling really comfortable about having them and I hope that that will continue to issue two. Just to move things on a little bit um, and we've sort of talked about British values in terms of being a space and a safe space and a space where sort of people of colour can own our stories and get into them. Um, how did your experience with um, the Guardian and Channel 4 documentary Muslim Drag Queens, which um, you produced for the Guardian? Uh, yeah. How long ago was that? Um, yeah, so I uh, started working on a documentary uh, about Muslim drag queens last year, um, which I pitched to the Guardian after making some, um, some uh, really interesting conversations and, and links and, and friendships, I guess, with um, people who were from those communities um, and lots of people um, from that world, you know, club owners, um, queens, um, you know, people who were involved in those um, LGBT rights during that time. Um, so I'd, I'd sort of been living with that for a few months and having lots of uh, conversations and wanted to make a documentary about it. I pitched the idea to The Guardian. Um, they really loved it. Uh, and uh, they gave me a director to work on, to work with, um, that they had handpicked, um, that they'd worked with with a production company previously. Um, and then, you know, uh, we made it, you know, sort of using all my access and the contacts and, you know, sort of my understanding of that community um, and the language and doing VO and, and whatever. And it was really successful. And um, The Guardian ended up actually, um, The Guardian multimedia section uh, ended up sort of sending that over to Channel 4, um, who made an hour-long documentary without me attached um, with the original director. Um, and I think that there, you know, I was having lots of conversations at that time because I was completely unaware of this until the Queen, some of the queens got in touch with me and said, are you involved in this Channel 4 production? And I was like, oh, I, I didn't know they were doing one. I had absolutely no idea about that. Um, and it, you know, it, it sort of later transpired that you know this was a conversation that was being had without me um, because they had now uh, the people involved um, who were, were predominantly well, they were all um, white men um, were <laughs> now had the access because I had worked with the director and they were now making an hour-long documentary and I, you know, I wasn't involved. So after lots of conversations with you know the diversity officer, Channel Four, the um, commissioners uh, with the, the Guardian multimedia section really aired my complaints and they responded and said, okay, we've heard you. We will throw you with thanks credit at the end of the documentary. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I sort of was really reticent and had lots of conversations with um, 
people like Rahul, who'd been a really great mentor previously about what I should do about this because I really wanted to speak out about it, but obviously was concerned that, you know, I would, I would uh, you know, damage a lot of those existing professional relationships. But then I just thought, well, you know, you can't prescribe to, you know, wanting minorities to tell their own stories and really be an arbiter and, and you know, an activist for that kind of thinking if you don't speak up about this kind of fuckery when it happens. And so, uh, yeah, I kind of wrote about the experience. I just blogged about the experience and the response was really overwhelming and that was really important for me to kind of channel my anger and my frustration um, positively and to say, do you know what? Minorities should be telling their own stories and we should be given opportunity. And, you know, the idea that um, predominantly white men in this case in power can take your voice away from you is unacceptable and, you know, of course, of course everyone's scared because largely, um, if you're, uh, you know, a woman of colour in the media, you, you probably haven't got through with, you know, lots of nepotism and entitlement behind you. So, of course, you're potentially coming from a perspective that's a little bit more wary or a little bit more sensitive and, and delicate and, and shook. But you just, you know, I, that helped me really find my voice and then I thought, well, I need to do this now because... I've just said that minority voices are important, so I've got to have a platform for us to tell our own stories properly. Um, yeah, and that was the end of that. And so I didn't get an apology from Channel 4 in the end, but I did get lots of online solidarity, which was really empowering for me. So that was that. As Muslim drag queens, I mean, first and foremost, just ultimate respect um, for fighting your corner um, so fiercely with The Guardian and with Channel 4. I mean, I'm aware that you were told this is just what happens, um, and that's just standard practice, um, but you refuse to sort of be um, cowed by that. Um, and I would, yeah, recommend all of you to Google um, Kieran's blog piece about it. It's an amazing piece of writing and really, really articulates the sort of, um, the levels of, yeah, um, wrongness that went on with that particular situation. And it's sort of an example or a microcosm of representation, people of colour, how they're represented in mainstream media, um, and the dynamics around that. Um, so, yeah, I would, yeah, heartily recommend searching that out. But also, most importantly for me was just, you know, people responding, saying we've experienced the same thing. You know, that's what to me was just like, oh God, really like depressing about it was that, you know, people were like, okay, this is just one example, but this is one of thousands of examples where people had experienced, had experienced similar things and, you know, hadn't spoken up for whatever reason or had spoken up and been silenced. And so that was, you know, that was just like, just a, a throwaway experience. And I don't think, you know, I'm not, I'm not making that as like, you know, there's this huge injustice done to me and me alone. It's just, it was like one of thousands of things that go on. But, you know, I am in a privileged position that I can write about these things and, you know, uh, media will pick it up. But it was, you know, the response was that this happens all the time and it's industry practice. And, you know, there were like 50 or 60 people who got in touch with me and said that they'd experienced similar things firsthand. So do you think British values, uh, we'd have British values, the magazine, without your Channel 4 experience? Um, 
Probably not in the same way. Uh, there, there was always something that I wanted to do there, but I think that, you know, using your anger effectively or, like, you know, complete white-hot rage and frustration about not being heard, uh, that really sort of propelled me to do that. And I had a lot of conversations around that time about the best way to sort of, you know, work out that for me. So I just didn't feel like I was totally depressed about everything all the time, <laughs> was to just, do, just do, do something like this and be like, I am really, you know, aware of stories that need to be told and, like, I'm funny and clever and people from my community are really funny and clever and there isn't enough opportunity to show that sometimes. So, there you go. Fair enough. Um, just talking about that sort of sense of solidarity you got uh, from social media around um, Muslim drag queens, I guess... At the launch for British Values, I was really struck by, um, yeah, that sort of social media solidarity. I think you introduced me to a group of people. I sort of had a chat, 10, 15 minutes with them, um, and asked how they knew Kieran. Um, and they'd never actually met you before. You'd, they were sort of Twitter friends and what you call brown, brown, brown Twitter, yeah. Um, and I think for me, not being fully aware of the power of brown Twitter, um, it's a generational thing. Yeah, well, obviously. I <laughs> um, was just really struck. Um, and what an amazing thing to have sort of people that you can connect with in a space um, and then that for that, uh, you know, the old digital to physical world, you know, um, and they were there and they weren't journalists and they weren't sort of coming at it from that angle. They just really related to your experience, obviously the magazine, um, well, they understood the importance of code switching, which is, you know, such a part of our everyday sometimes, which is, you know, in, in certain spaces, having to have a performed identity. And then when you're in your safe space, being able to be like, oh, I'm just going to make a cardinal joke or I'm going to make a, you know, whatever joke that, that people understand that's an in-joke that in your professional environment, maybe you can't make because people don't get it. Um, and I think that the, like, what, what we do generally um, as journalists and what lots of people across the UK are doing is having half the conversation at work, you know, and being half represented professionally or in certain spaces. And then when we can suddenly get back home or get on Twitter, be like, oh, this is funny for another reason. Oh. Um, and, you know, that's really exciting. And that's, you know, that's, that's great. And I think that just like flagging that up um, is great because there is a real sense of loneliness sometimes but that's just counteracted by the real sense of empowerment that you get from uh, having a shared community, whether that's online or, you know, IRL or URL, that they exist. And that's amazing, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I guess the other scenario with which I was really struck by that sort of social media um, solidarity thing was the sort of um, the thing that happened with District Nightclub. Yeah. You know, in my day of raving, uh, which was a while ago, that's standard practice but you just went home, and that was that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, <laughs> that, was, that was kind of amazing. I really liked that um, Stormzy, uh, you know, yeah. Grime MC, was, you know, really vocal about that. Um, you know, he's, he's probably one of the guys who always gets the response like, God, he's such an articulate black guy. Um, feedback from people when they meet him. And I think that people uh, during that time were just you know, really funneling in on the importance of having, like, safe spaces for, you know, 
because this happens all the time, like being turned away. For those of you who, who aren't 100% sure, it was basically the, the dist a district nightclub were turning away. They turned away a group of girls because they were too dark, I think, a, a group of black girls. And it really um, sort of amplified a conversation online about how many people had, had experienced this firsthand, whether it's being racially profiled and stop and searched, whether it was um, you know, being profiled under the Terrorism Act, whether it was you know, being uh, you know, turned away from a nightclub or whatever. It was just this really great conversations about people sharing their experiences of people just saying no off the back of seeing them. And yeah, when those kind of things happen online, I'm just so glad that we exist in one space. Absolutely, absolutely. I guess we should probably move towards um, wrapping up this uh, element of this evening and then move towards getting some questions from the floor. But considering the title of this uh, talk, um, what the fuck are British values? <laughs> Pardon my French. <laughs> There's such a leaky Asian that you don't know, want to say don't fuck. tell my mum. <laughs> don't tell my mum. <laughs> um, I mean, for, for me, you know, as, you know, as generations before me has always known and will always continue to know, British values are about celebrating diverse experiences um, and celebrating immigrant communities because we know, and people who choose to engage in our experience in our communities know, that we're funny and clever and have great jokes and have great in-jokes and have contributions to make. And if we're given an opportunity and a platform to make them, we'll make them really effectively. So British values has always been about celebrating those diverse experiences. Just people need to catch up, I think. Brilliant. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you. So, yes, if anyone's got any questions. Oh, there we go. Hello, is this on? Hello? Um, Hi. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, I, uh, I actually have a question. Like the, so I guess the discussion is about British values. What is British values is a real thing. And the question is, like, you've created a, a magazine or a separate form which is about like, celebrating diversity. But do you think that actually confronts the question of British values? British values is a kind of discursive form of violence. It dispossesses people. It's, it's meant to like, racialize people and marginalize people. And it's, it's actually violence. Like, it's in its like super structural sense, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, do we actually confront that by being like, it's great, what you're doing is great, but I'm saying, does it actually confront it? Or is it form-fitted within the logic of a liberal state? Look, you can have a voice too, and then you can have a voice too. Sure. You know, it, rather than being like, look, actually this is bullshit, this is racist, and actually we shouldn't even conform to this, we should confront it. And I, I'm not saying that th these are like mutually exclusive, I'm just curious, is there a more efficacious way of confronting the bullshit of British values? I think the way... <laughs> Uh, I think for me, personally, the reason why that term, the abstract concept of British values is dangerous is because um, the way that it's used in media predominantly is to describe something that you don't understand. So the fear-mongering is really successful because you're describing something that we don't understand, like they're the other, they have a culture that we don't understand, they're voices that we don't understand, they look a certain way, they're the enemy, it's really effective way of dividing and conquering, which is why to me it feels violent and divisive. So for me personally, the way to, to 
confront that is by saying, well, actually, there isn't fear-mongering. And like, if you engage in those communities, you are like, unpicking those experiences. So it's not about saying, like, uh, Muslims are a threat. Uh, refugees don't make economic contribution and being really violent towards that. It's about saying, well, actually, there's this whole uh, lived experience of like, different people who are experiencing different things. And that, to me, is a way of saying, well, actually, your, your violence is ineffective because you're talking about something that isn't really real. So that, that to me is why I think they do that. And also it's, in, it's like, it's made from an angry place. But I think there's also other ways that people are confronting that issue, effect, maybe more effectively. Um, thank you very much for sharing your experience about the zine. Um, one thing that um, I felt uh, quite strongly about when you were talking is um, the omission of a very, very important dimension with regards to British value being embedded in the Common Inspection Framework with Ofsted, and that every single school, further education college, primary, secondary school have to demonstrate when they're being inspected by Ofsted that they are embedding British value within the curriculum and the mm -hmm. impact that that has mm -hmm. on those schools and the way it's being interpreted, and, um, in, especially if you link it to the prevent um, duty. And the other thing which is also being omitted, I think, is the cuts to ESOL, which is English to speakers of other languages. Uh, I was at a parliamentary lobby meeting this afternoon protesting against those very cuts. 45 million pounds have been cut for adult, from adult education this year. 24%, and I think that's absolutely outrageous. So I think it's really good that you're looking at it from a cultural perspective, but from the education perspective, there's a major dimension that we mustn't forget about. And that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Um, just to kind of respond a little bit to that, I think that uh, for me, having uh, a cultural response to um, you know, landmark speeches like Cameron's in Birmingham where he really talked about very specifically how this was going to affect uh, the curriculum and how this was going to affect a whole generation of classrooms to come was, you know, was definitely a, a driving force for me. But for me as a culture journalist, you know, this was something where I was uh, approaching a, a group of writers and saying, what are the kind of things that you feel most strongly about? And so it was a really good representation of what they were feeling. But moving on, that's definitely something that I'll consider. It's being institutionalized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi, thanks. Um, I guess jumping off on the institution um, idea, I guess I just wanted to see what you thought about um, Baha Mustafa, um, Goldsmith's welfare. Um, yeah, the woman that's kind of actually going to be charged for something that was kind of blown up in the press. I think inflammatory language is part of the problem where I think she made a request that no white men attended an event she was holding for BME students. And that got reported as her kind of having an outright ban. You know, she's being charged. And I wanted to kind of contrast that with something else at another institution. So Oxford University had a debate um, in late April this year um, about Cecil Rhodes. It was on Twitter, hashtag Rhodes Must Fall. And it was about kind of renaming 
the libraries some, um, you know, sculpt sculptures of him in Oxford to kind of acknowledge <laughs> what a fucking bad guy he was. Um, <laughs> on the day of that debate at the Oxford Union, the students put out a flyer advertising a cocktail called the Colonial Comeback Cocktail. Mm -hmm. And it had an image of black hands in chains. So here's something that's shocking. Whether or not it's intended as a joke, it's so appalling. And to think that 21-year-olds are putting that out there, and just to kind of compare those two things. So here's a BME woman who's essentially trying to do a job of welfare officer and create these safe spaces for people who's ultimately being charged. And then the students at Oxford University, and this was reported in The Guardian and other places, where you just get no comment. So the protection of an institution, of course, with its wealth and its money, and then the kind of um, lack of protection for someone like Bahar. And I guess I just wanted to kind of put that out there as a comparison and also see what you think about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I um, recently wrote a piece about um, exactly the kind of things that you're talking about um, for The Guardian, and I spoke to Baha Mustafa about the importance of having safe spaces um, in, in the uni environment, and she was talking about how, like, how important uh, a lot of the students found it, and a lot of the testimonies that she had said was that, you know, um, the kind of microaggressions that people experienced in, like, freshers specifically made them feel like really even more alienated, so it was really important that she was creating these kind of spaces, and I was definitely uh, in support of that. I think that just kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about censorship in the same way that we were discussing homegrown. You know, Baha Mustafa is, you know, somebody who was making what to me was clear satire when she tweeted kill all white men, which has been taken completely out of context and used um, against her and she's been charged. And we were having a discussion earlier about, you know, obviously maybe this is an obvious point to make about why people like Katie Hopkins or Melanie Phillips are making really damaging, um, you know, claims against uh, people from immigrant communities and hasn't been charged or isn't being vilified in the same way. And I think that this is just, um, you know, what's happening with, with her is a, is a real kind of, it's, it's a disproportionate attack on something where she is trying to make a very nuanced point and the point has really been taken um, out of context because perhaps there was another way that she could have made that. And I understand from new eyes of someone who's not part of the context and who's part of the narrative or part of conversations like this all the time, they could see a tweet like that and feel really threatened by it. And I understand where I understand why a lot of the media um, reported it in the way that they did. But I think that that just flags up like the, the whole debate which we're talking about, where if there were an, a minority journalist writing about this, they would cover it differently. And that is, you know, that's the whole point. That's the whole point about people approaching these, uh, these kinds of events with nuance and with understanding and with context. And I think that that's been completely devoid of the way that that story's been reported, which is why she's been so vehemently attacked. I got a question, but I can't ask the mic. Sorry. It's all right. Um, I just started out as a, as a, like a writer, and it's kind of nerve-wracking the direction take at the moment. I don't know whether, whether to go full on 
and try and get well paid and write for people like the Sun and the Daily Mail, who obviously pay well for whether to, to, to write in the kind of the principles I believe in, write for places like the Guardian, etc. <coughs> so, basically, do you, have you ever tried to engage with platforms like the Sun, like the Daily Mail, and get your views across on those platforms? Or because obviously you're talking about devices like us versus them, I think obviously sometimes it's like a tsunami of, of like of basically hate when the kind of stuff is coming out from the day. So I just think sometimes maybe it'd be so much better if there was somehow like a platform on those kind of papers that obviously read or more widely read, especially then places like the Guardian where the numbers are falling, stuff like that. Like obviously I'd love to write for the Guardian, but I wanna I think it'd be more powerful somehow to get those kind of platforms out on the places like the Sun or Daily Mail. And obviously, they would probably not really engage with it. But have you ever tried to pitch to these kind of people, or have you just completely ignored them because of what they represent? Yeah, um, I think there's a couple of things at play there. Probably one is that you're, you know, I generally am a minority in most of those newsrooms um, and most of those spaces. So, whatever. To me, it's you know, it's it's the same. It's you know, a lot of the broadsheets that I've worked with. I have worked for the Mirror. I did a bit of cover there um, for a while in that newsroom, but that you know, that experience was the same. And you know, a lot of the time there are you know, broadsheet media outlets which are supposedly supposed to be our like you know, liberal saviors, and I have felt just as alienated, um, and 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 just as uh, kind of as a minority in those spaces. So. You know, there's not always this idea that if you're going to write for a liberal broadsheet that, that you're going to be devoid and people are going to get you all the time and you're going to be able to write about, you know, really great uh, sort of leftist things all the time. So that's probably a good um, preamble. But yeah, I, I think it's important to engage with those spaces just because, you know, maybe it's an obvious point to make, but because you're knowing your enemy, you're knowing the way that this works and you're providing an alternative voice for the way that, you know, the way that news is being presented. I think that it's really easy to feel attacked, but I think that that's kind of what we do, you know. I think that there's been, you know, plenty of newsrooms that I've occupied where I felt totally attacked and totally unheard, but I've still been really glad that I was there because that's what I'm reporting back and that's what I'm saying to people and, that's, and it's taught me how to come at things from a different angle. So, you know, my advice is always to engage and, it, you know, it's the reason why perhaps you wouldn't be so shocked when you see that there's a Tory party majority in the same way that, you know, for me, a lot of my friends who, you know, maybe uh, are Labour voters, after that I was, like, totally shocked and it made me realise how much of a bubble that I often live inside. And I think that maybe that's something that we all feel from time to time and it's really important to pop that um, in order to make sure that we are reporting in a really unbiased way and we're reflecting the whole story. And, like, just, you know, I don't know, for me... It's, it's just important to kind of know your enemy in that way, so you have the so you have the ability to respond in a really effective way. You know what I mean? Hey, does this is this on? Hey, yeah, oh, sorry. it's on. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen her in ages. Um, first, hi. So um, first I wanted to go back to you guys' point about coded language being used. Mm -hmm. And um, what I was wondering was why the media as a whole, like including what we would consider like 
left-leaning, like the BBC and stuff. They continue to use coded language as kind of like a dog whistle to people that are, that don't particularly like black and ethnic minorities in this country. And why not just say what they mean? If they mean to say, oh, um, we don't want to let Muslims in the country, why don't they just say that instead of saying, we don't want people that don't adhere to British values? Because it seems that that conversation only happens when it's people from um, non-white immigrant communities. Because I remember like, we had loads of Polish people come in Britain over the last 10 years. It's not like a million yet, I think, but it was quite a lot. A lot more than they're allowing to come in from places like Syria and other um, countries. So I was wondering what your thoughts on that. I think um, that that's that's a really good point that you're making, and it's actually a conversation that we were having earlier, specifically related to Katie Hopkins, and we were just saying that the way, the reason that possibly that she gets away with saying, you know, really sort of, um, <laughs> well, just things that are definitely in the realm of hate crimes is because maybe editors are allowing her to go like really close to the line and then pulling her back which is what Rahul was saying earlier which is like just at the point where you know she could be charged there's they're sort of pulling it back and so they're create so I think that you know the media is sort of creating this um you know a benchmark of like what Katie Hopkins exists really on the right of that where they're saying really extreme things. So it means that when you hear Theresa May talking about British values and you know what that means and you being part of it and you being in or out and you being friend or foe doesn't really sound that bad because we've just heard Katie Hopkins say that if you don't speak English you should all fuck off. So whenever you hear coded language you think, oh well actually like yeah, I'm on board. That is something that we should support. And I think that Middle England particularly hear that and they hear that coded language and they think yeah, we understand that. It's a, you know, it's a really soft in way of integrating difference. It's a way of you know, in integrating in your homeland. It's a way of making Britain your home. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it is so effective is because it's a way of you know, really softening the blow of what they're really saying. And you know, if, if they were just saying, yeah, you're Muslim and we don't like you, it w well, my personal feeling is that that wouldn't be as effective, but the reason why you have swing voters um, that have, you know, have, are now voting conservative is because they suddenly think, actually, yeah, they're making a lot of good points. Whereas it's difficult to get behind that when they're saying women don't like you. But when there's, you know, drip feeding this idea of, you know, oh, Nadia, does Nadia need to make a chocolate mosque next? You know, that is just, you know, <laughs> really uh, gently making the point that you know, our the, the fabric of British life is being muddied by these people who are coming in and changing things for all of us. And so I think it's, a, it's probably a really effective way of making that point in a, in a way that uh, conforms and appeals to Middle England. If I could follow up on that, um, you're absolutely right, Kieran. I think um, this sort of coded language is fundamentally, you know, we've moved beyond racism. How do we mark out difference and now it's through cultural values essentially so you know British values is a way of saying them and us and it's just a lot more sophisticated in terms of it not being as blatant as it used to be back in the day in terms of colour um, and that is kind of quite a scary thing because the state is talking about those things, it's reproduced in all of the state's institutions, whether that's the police and so on and so forth. And as we've heard, it's filtering into education. 
Um, so yeah, for me, it is just um, a very sophisticated way of marking them and us. Um, and in that respect, it is deeply depressing and deeply worrying. And it's really effective, like, new world racism, you know, that kind of old school racism of, like, you're a Paki, go back to your own country, is, is, like, very different to now saying, you don't quite conform to, you know, the culture of British, you know, British life. But really, the point that they're making is the same, but they're sort of, you know, enabling this far more mainstream language so that, you know, people on the far right um, in various communities are saying the same thing in the same way. I just wanted to say that I just think that people would have much more honest conversations about race if they just said what exactly what they meant instead of just trying to kind of pussyfoot around the issue. I just think it's mm -hmm. a That's it. Thank you. Yep, I agree. Thank you. <laughs> First of all, uh, you're really amazing. And <laughs> I just want to congratulate you on taking a stand. and. Um, my question is, how do we move forward? And I think that, I think it's fantastic. I'm definitely part of, well, why am I bending like this? Sorry. <laughs> Take ownership. Um, I'm definitely part of the DIY, you know, where I haven't had access, I couldn't get into television, whatever. So I was like, right, YouTube channel, write my own thing, get a camera, film it, let's make this thing happen. I'm definitely, so I'm with you on that. And it's like, okay, so we do these and we produce these amazing pieces of work, but then how do we get it through to white people how they can speak to us and engage us and learn from us and earn from us because we as brown and black people have an enormous amount of wealth that could be tapped into if only white people would be able to have those conversations with us that would allow um, you know, people of ethnic minorities into the workplaces where these important decisions about media from television to film, newspapers, how do we, how would you suggest that that discourses opened up for them. Thanks. For me... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's good. Um, for me, I think it's, um, you know, this is a contested view, but for me personally, I think um, finding white people who are allies in spaces which are predominantly white dominated, like much of the media, you know, representation in newsrooms is notoriously um, disgusting. And I think that for me, that's always, you know, that's, that's been really important. I'm always probably going to be, um, you know, a minority woman of color in these spaces. It's really in my best interest to do some work in the same way that our parents have always told us that we have to work twice as hard. So work twice as hard to uh, find those allies. So for me, it was about, you know, professionally anyway, it was about finding writers who I felt got it. There's always people that get it, you know, obviously there's white people that will always get it and they will always want to engage with difference and will always, you know, be supportive and, you know, be acts of solidarity. Um, I guess the issue is, is that they're often in the minority, especially um, professionally in my opinion um, and in my experience. And so I, you know, I really found writers who I thought really got it, who I really, who are really championing the same things that I thought, who I was really admiring from afar, who I really respected. And I just sort of built relationships with them and said, okay, how do I get into this space? How do I get in? You know, who is the editor here that I could talk to who gets it? Who, like, who do you think? Like, are you, are you willing to listen to me? Are you willing to 
make sure that my voice is heard. And, you know, nine times out of ten, they were. And, you know, then when I sort of was out on my own and, you know, sometimes it was effective and sometimes I got fucked over. But I think that it's about, one, um, resigning yourself to the fact that you are going to have to work twice as hard quite often. That is, you know, that is part of our experience. And two, understanding that, you know, white people that get it are amazing and can be, you know, a, a really um, sort of uh, amazing lifeline. And, you know, that act of solidarity is really important for, to then enable us to say, yeah, we can go off and do things on our own and tell our own stories in our own way. But, you know, like anything, you know, there is, we understand the hoops that we have to jump. And, you know, finding a good white editor that gets it is one of the hoops. Just to follow up on that, um, yeah, as a, someone that's been a practicing journalist for quite a long time now, since 1998, um, it's just really interesting to see what um, social media and digital media um, makes available now. Previously, you know, you're on the outside, you're trying to get in, and that was, you know, a struggle enough. Now, to me, it seems that there are spaces where you can create and share and the means of production, distribution, exchange are a lot more readily available. Um, so I think if you can sort of, as it sounds like you absolutely are, getting your hustle on and just kind of persevere. And as Kieran says, you know, unfortunately, we will have to work twice as hard. My mum said to me, you're going to have to work twice as hard as uh, a white person. She said to my sister, you're going to have to work four times as hard because you're a woman <clears throat> and you're brown. Um, but yeah, you know, it's not such a bleak picture. To me, it does seem like it's opening up in, across social media, across digital media. These conversations are happening. People like Sky Arts are kind of really championing and supporting diversity and actually shaming people like the BBC who have been talking a good game for a very long time but haven't actually been doing much about it. So yeah, it's tough, but it's not as bleak or as desperate um, as it might seem and just um yeah keep your hustle on and um come and have a chat with kieran and i afterwards and um you know we're all in, we're all in this together it's about being good at what you do um, and that's the most important thing and creating those solutions is so important you know as as a working journalist and as an editor you know i we understand the problems we understand the things that we're um, being frustrated about and being able to be in a position to say, well, here's a solution to that. Here's something that I'm doing. Can you give me an opportunity to be heard? It's like amazing. And I think that that is, you're right. That's changing. People are being slowly more open to that. And the fact that we can't be ignored anymore. You know, we exist physically. We exist online. We're like here in front of you. We're not going anywhere. We've been here for a minute. We're not going anywhere. That, like, that means that things are going to change and things are changing and like we're going to have to be heard. And as long as we're producing really quality things. You know, Cecile Miko is a really good example of someone who was like, made me think totally different about the, even the use of minorities, you know. She was, she always talks to me about that, well, she was talking to me about the idea of, you know, the fact that we think of ourselves as minorities, but on the earth we're not. Um, and that's just in itself has been really empowering to me. And it made me really positive about the fact that things are changing. Hey. Hi. Um, I just wanted to um, say that obviously we're aware of the fact that there are a lot of issues that are kind of not being addressed or we're trying to ensure they're being addressed. 
Um, and obviously one major thing is the fact that you know, the whole idea of British identity, British values, there's not actually been a political debate, certainly not in the 21st century, about actually what it means. And I think that's obviously why there's a massive issue is because you know, those, in, those in power, the institutions that are controlling what's going on, don't want that debate to be actually made public or put in place because the, the values that they're sort of promoting, the identity they're saying should exist, will be completely undermined. Um, and, I, and I think it's great in terms of what you're doing culturally, but I think there will be a point where you may have to engage politically. Um, and I was just wondering, um, would you want to do that? And if you did, what would you like to do? Um, and I think as a person that you seem to be sort of getting this gradual increasing following, you are in a position where people that wouldn't maybe listen to you previously will listen to you now. So with the opportunity, what would you want to do um, engaging in that sort of political environment? Um, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, <laughs> Kieran for Prime Minister. <laughs> I mean, I think it's hard because, you know, quite often we haven't come from a position, like I was saying, of, of being really entitled and, you know, com coming into places thinking that you can uh, be heard in certain spaces. So even still for me, I, I feel totally like, I don't know, is, any, is anyone listening to what I'm saying? But I think, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly something that we're doing, you know, even by existing, even by being here, everything that we're doing is political. Um, and the more and more you do that, the more and more keenly aware you are of it, the more and more sort of, you know, you have a very heightened awareness of just placing yourself in these spaces as a political act in itself. So actually engaging in politics or, you know, talking to politicians or being in the House of Lords isn't really that far removed from that. You know, it's just another step. So, you know, that's, I, you know, I'm a journalist that writes about politics. I'm a journalist, I'm not an activist. That is, you know, definitely where I see myself. I'm happy to engage in political spaces, but that's not something that really appeals to me in that way. But I'm very supportive of people who are. And, you know, I think that uh, writing about politics as a journalist is, you know, probably the best place for me. That is, you know, where I feel most comfortable and where I feel like I could do the most work. Um, but, yeah, I'm not like trying to hit up the House of Commons anytime soon. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just think, I think that all the people that are, those are like conversations that need to be nurtured and those are the conversations that I'm happy like to support. And I think that like moving on, like, you know, taking this kind of energy and like moving it in, um, you know, places that's making real political change and being really um, politically challenging is not difficult. I think that that's like something that I definitely want to do. I think that that is, you know, uh, that was kind of the test of British values, seeing if there was, you know, were there people who wanted to engage. Now I know that there are, and that is going to change things from now on, you know. That means that the content is going to be different. It means that the kind of um, talks and platforms that we have are going to be different. It means that the people who want to be really engaged politically are going to have uh, their voices heard because suddenly there's going to be a space where they can have their voices heard and you know I'll be able to you know chair and you know be a facilitator for people who are talking about those kind of things in a very keen um, political way so I think that that's really how I see myself as like a facilitator of other people politically rather than wanting to stand for that myself but thank you um, for me just uh, 
one of the most interesting ways of opening that question about British identity and what it is was the Scottish referendum. Um, and that for me was like a really exciting time and for no other reason than um, wanting to open up and shake up and bring into the public discourse what British identity is. I'm pro-Scottish independence. And, you know, I'm sure you've all been in seminars and you've grappled with this question. How do we get sort of the state and its institutions talking about this? Um, you know, it's obviously a great deal of frustration for lots of people, but it is what it is. And to me, actually, Scottish independence is going to be the thing that gets us talking about that and people like the Daily Mail or the Daily Express. Because as soon as you start to unpick what Britain is, you um, start to ask these questions. You know, in New Zealand at the moment, they're choosing their new national flag. Could you ever imagine that happening here? So, yeah, bring on Scottish independence. But also, I think that just, just on that point as well, the way that um, people have really distanced themselves from, um, you know, St. Saint, Saint George flag has been, for me, that was like a really important move. That was a really important moment of saying, actually, that represents something that isn't me. That represents, you know, a, a kind of ideology that I want to be really distanced from. And I think that, you know, speaking to conflict refugees, speaking to first-generation immigrants and speaking about where they feel like uh, their own identity lies, you know, is, is, you know, such a kind of diverse responses from that, of like, you know, I'm an African in Britain, or, you know, I'm uh, British Asian, the idea of like being British Asian of what that really means. We always talk about, I'm always like, yeah, like I'm really happy to call myself a British Asian because I've made Britain sick. Whereas Rahul's like, yeah, but you're putting like Britain before Asian. And, you know, there's, you know, that I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, internal conflict about how we see ourselves. Uh, for me, uh, being a British Asian and thinking of myself in that way has been like completely empowering because I know all the great things about that. And when I think about, you know, people who I respect, that, that to me is a really empowering term. And I know that there's other people who just don't want, don't want to be called British. And, you know, I, I was recently in Turkey and one of the things that I, I noticed when people were asking where I was from was I was saying India. They were like, where are you from? And I was like, India. And they were like, your accent is really good. And I was like, I am. I was like, I'm an Indian, Indian but I live in Britain, you know? And I think that it's, it's usually just, uh, yeah, about context. Um, and I'm sure that there's people who would call themselves, um, you know, in, in terms of what's happening in Scotland, would call themselves something very different than they would maybe a year or two ago now. Hey. Sorry. Okay. Um, congratulations on what you're doing. I think it's really great. I just want I just wanted to make an observation really. Um, there's not I haven't noticed once the word um, hybrid or mixed being used. And as someone who comes from that background, I wondered I, it's quite nice to see you own the word brown, but it's something I've never really owned myself because I'm half white and half brown. So I just wondered what your thoughts on that were. Especially is the future what 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 will the country look like in fifty years' time? I think it's a really important thing to, to raise. Um, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I think that's a really important point, and to me specifically, because mixed race identity, um, you know, is really talked about in a lot of ways, but it's often, um, you know, uh, not part of uh, these conversations, or is not treated in the same way, because people who maybe, you know, look white, but are, you know, mixed race, um, uh, English and Indian, or whatever, um, 
have a very different kind of experience and a different relationship with British identity, um, but are so reflective of the way that that um, demographic is moving and the way the population is changing. Um, I think that, yeah, I, I think that there is a lot of kind of um, rich observations to make about those experiences, and I think it really boils down to pathways. Um, one of the features that I'm doing in, in issue two is, is about mudbloods, um, which is like, um, you know, mi mixed race people um, who have kind of, you know, arrived at Britain through different pathways and really having ownership of that journey and really, and, and the way that it's, the way that you've seen the world and the way that you've, you feel like you're identified with, you know, a person of colour, even though you might look like a white person. You know, Baha Mustafa being called a white girl by Toby Young is such a classic example of that. You know, that it, it creates these sort of underlying internal conflicts, which is potentially really dangerous. And I guess what needs to happen to counteract that is a real ownership of the term, um, which I don't think we've seen in pop culture. And, and I think that we haven't seen in the mainstream. And I think that once we see that, that will start filtering down in other ways. Um, so that's a challenge for you, I guess, um, to create a space for that. But yeah, I think, I think you're totally right. And I think it's really exciting for me to see how things are moving in that direction. Um, but also, like, I'm, I'm constantly frustrated about how divorced they are from these kinds of, of conversation. And I think that that is going to change as well. Um, one, of, one of the interviews that we had was with um, a, an artist called Kindness who um, identifies as mixed race, English and Gujarati. And he was saying that, you know, that constant um, sidestepping, the constant feeling of being like a hybrid. Um, or being, you know, mixed race, or being, you know, uh, you know, half of something. It's completely the wrong way to think about it because really it's about being additional. It's about having additional identity, and it's about um, contributing to additional different kinds of cultures. In the same way that, you know, for, for for me certainly, I've had, you know, an additional identity on top of going to the Guardian and and knowing about quinoa or whatever. You know, I've also known you know, about Subji and about all these other things going on. So this duality hasn't really been celebrated enough, which is what I want to do. And I think that mixed race identity, the duality of that and the richness of that and the kind of, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, the, the double awareness of different, uh, you know, really nuanced cultural experiences, amazing. And I'm excited to see how that conversation moves forward. I feel very fortunate to be here. I'm just blowing through town for two days and I'm trying to do something similar to what you're doing in the corporate consulting world in New York City. And it is a massive, massive challenge. Um, and you are so inspiring in all the questions. Um, I feel like I, someone led me here, so this is amazing. Um, two questions, how do you see the discourse Sorry? in the US, the discourse in the US on this subject? Do you have an eye into that? You're working with some people in New York and. I was living in Europe for a few years in Vienna, Austria, and had some really confronting experiences being pushed off my bike called a dirty Indian. Um, I grew up in Montreal, Toronto, and New York City, so those were things. When you talk about underground racism, I certainly experienced those. Your house smells funny. Why does your mom dress like that? So on and so forth. What's in your lunchbox? But nothing egregious like that. So that was really confronting. And I was wondering what you think about the discourse generalizing Europe versus the US. It's hard to do, but if you have some you know, experience, I would love to hear that. The second thing I have a question about is sometimes the most difficult conversations I have with people who are women, it's with people who are women and it's with people who are women of color. And there's a real denial. And I think it's because of a cognitive dissonance thing 
everything's fine, what do you mean? Things are changing, it's not like that anymore. And it's so ultimately frustrating, and instead of being angry, I want to find a way to invite them in. So if you have some comments or thoughts on that, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, in terms of, uh, yeah, what I call first-hand smelly packy syndrome is, uh, you know, that's like a very like, real thing. Uh, and I think that that's a, a really real thing that, you know, uh, brown women specifically are working against. And I know that that is the kind of thing that, you know, people talk about all the time in a sort of normalized way, which is why you sort of have to be funny about it if you're not going to be depressed all the time because you're very aware of your difference. I think that um, the way that uh, you're talking about the US specifically in terms of identity is interesting to me is, has been through a lot of conversations I've had about black identity because, you know, thanks to the history of uh, slavery, it me has meant that a whole generation of African-American people not understanding or knowing their pathways in a way that identifies the, um, uh, their experience in the same way that it does in the UK. So in the same way that people might have ownership of, you know, um, you know, got very strong Ghanaian or Nigerian identity, you don't have that in the US as keenly. So I think that there are a lot of very interesting conversations happening over there uh, in, in order to really confront that and confront the uh, long-term effects of that, like how is this generation now dealing with the idea that um, they don't know if they should be supporting the Ghanaian football team, for example. Um, I think in terms of being, you know, um, a brown woman in the US, um, you know, post 9-11, that's, you know, we felt that keenly over here. And I think that that is, you know, something which I, you know, which the, in which the internet has been really important for me. I know that, uh, there was a really great hashtag on 9-11 saying after September 11th, um, which was started by, um, you know, a, a girl in the US who was saying after September the 11th, there was, you know, basically talking about first-hand experiences of things that she had felt and it became, you know, this viral, um, you know, thing on Twitter where saying, we you know, after September the 11th, brown people weren't cool. You know, um, people were like, you know, pulling my mom's hijab off. People were just saying, you stink. People were saying, you know... What, you know, for me, it was like being on a night bus and people being like, oh, don't blast up, love. You know, those kind of like throwaway comments. And I think that that kind of uh, leads neatly on to what you were saying about frustrating conversations with other women of colour is because I think you get to a point when you've been uh, talking about these kinds of things quite a lot in your circle with, you know, people who might have felt it firsthand, people who might not have. And what happens is you have a really heightened sensitivity and awareness to them. So... You know, for me, I am so aware of things that make me feel away. So I'll be like, you know, there's, there'll be an example like um, Ahmed and his clock, um, which are a, a big news story, which I'm not sure you're following about, you know, young guy Ahmed who, uh, you know, made a digital clock and he was reported by his school because uh, it was seen as a bomb threat. And I think that that, you know, those kind of stories are very clear. The other very tiny nuanced stories which you might feel away and you're talking to, um, you know, somebody who you think might understand you but doesn't, uh, can be really frustrating. And I think that it's about you fighting, like finding your battles that you want to fight. For me, you know, a lot of the conversations that I have with my friends is like, ah, oh, like, do I want to be fighting everything all the time? Like, people think I'm mean. <laughs> or, you know, like, yeah, angry brown girl syndrome is really silencing me now because this is something that I can see is really wrong or really has made me feel emotional, but if I put all the energy into it, I'm fighting all the time. You know, there's, 
you know, even like asking a simple question about something that makes you, you know, makes you feel emotional, usually has come up to, you know, hyper defensiveness. Um, one one recent example, just at the top of my head, was that there is a like a a, a, a drinks company where I live um, locally called um, Alibaba Juice, and I was uh, asking like why, you know, why they use that name because they're you know two white people, just as a kind of very sort of you know outside like uh, question and I think that the response was so defensive and so frustrating for me that it was just like another example of you know me being angry and people maybe not getting it you know lots of like the you know refugee aid uh, lineups that we've had recently to try and support um, refugees uh, in camps across Europe who have you know all white lineups or you know uh, festivals who have all white lineups or you know there's I mean the the examples are countless. And I think that that kind of thing um, I'm hypersensitive to. And we we just have to find the things that we think are worth fighting on an emotional level or else you're always just going to fight and you're always just going to you know, not have your energy for that. And even though it's really depressing as fuck to say this, you're always going to be seen as an angry brown girl, which will ultimately silence you because you know, people see as you're too difficult to work with. And so I think it's about finding a safe space where you can have those conversations that are, aren't going to feel like they're ultimately negative. Um, understanding that it's really important and, and great about yourself, that you do feel hypersensitive to these things and you do feel them keenly and, and understanding a way to work through that yourself. Um, and then also just continuing to, to talk about it and continuing to fight that fight even when you feel like everyone's like tired of what you have to say or they're not getting it or you're having really frustrating conversations with people that you feel like should get it or have to and just taking a step back and saying, okay, everything's relative. It's like, you know, it's, it's just too egotistical of me to assume that you get or you should feel passionate about the same things I feel passionate about, you know? Not everyone cares, and that's okay sometimes. You know, if that's your friend or if that's like your cousin who doesn't get it, you can't. You know, you, you just all you can say is this is how I feel and this is why I feel it. You can't make them feel it. So, anyway, that's how I feel about that. Sorry. <laughs> Hi. Hey. Sorry. Hi. Um, sorry. I just want to say that um, I really appreciate you coming in. It's really inspired me. Um, so, on Facebook, I think it's such a good outlet because, um, so this year I kind of just started posting, if I saw something about racism, um, a good piece and stuff, and I'd write a little comment on it and post it. And um, I've been using it as a kind of activism against racism and stuff like that. So, um, and one thing that I've noticed is that I'm mixed race and people see me, they do see me as white sometimes. And um, I don't like that it's actually given me a sort of privilege into talking to white people about it. I, do, I, I feel quite uncomfortable with that, but it has. Um, people seem to take it on more because I'm you know, half white, half Asian. Um, but I just wanted to encourage others as well to use Facebook as a way of um, you know, standing up for racism, stuff like this. And um, like the other week, I had um, a very, very right-wing uh, conservative guy that messaged me because I'd left a comment on one of his posts, which was quite racist. And um, I just said it in quite a nice way, you know, why he got the concept of Islam completely wrong and stuff like this. I didn't really expect anything back, but he wrote back saying that um, he deleted the post and he really understood where I was coming from, that he wanted to talk more about the roots of Islam and stuff. So 
that's one to encourage others to kind of keep doing stuff like that because it does make a difference, definitely. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I think that that's true, and I think that um, often conversations like this can just get into a bit of a like, oh, isn't everything so fucking depressing? But it's not. And as someone who's done a lot of mentoring, as someone who's been mentored by, um, you know, Rahul, was, who was just so important for me as, you know, a brown journalist doing really great work that I could look up to, was really important and made that point for me, made that point that, yeah, things are getting better, and this is probably a really good uh, example of things getting better because this is you know, a full room of people having these conversations and feel it and are going to make real change just by existing and just by being here. Um, and as someone that has mentors, uh, you know, young people from immigrant communities, uh, I'm always, like, really positive about how things are changing. And I'm always, like, you are, you know, you're going to be in a position where you are the best person to write something or say something or record something or document something. You need to take ownership over it, whether you're like in the arts, if you're in the corporate world, wherever you are existing, you're the best person for it. And you'll get to a place where you are and that's going to be so empowering and we see examples of that happening all the time. And that's going to continue to happen. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, you were talking earlier about how, um, you know, like BME writers and stuff like struggle to find sort of places that get it and places that will run their stuff. Well, I write for this magazine called Huck and it's kind of like a DIY culture, sort of radical culture magazine and stuff. And we're like very conscious about, you know, the people we cover, them being diverse and stuff. You know, if we're covering stuff from the global south, we're like really careful not to put it through a sort of orientalist lens and we're you know constantly killing stories that have you know a kind of white savior complex to them like particularly in the developing world and stuff that said i've no i've been there two years since i finished uni and everyone i work with is white i don't think i've seen anyone brown or black like walk through the door in two years um and it's getting more and more embarrassing, really, the more time it goes on. <laughs> and, I mean, it's quite a diverse group of people. Like, we've got people from South Africa, from Brazil, from all over, but everyone is white. And <laughs> Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of the freelancers we work with from different parts of the world, not so much, but, it's yeah, it's embarrassing. Every intern we've had in two years has been white, middle class. I'm quite bored because they all say the same thing, so... <laughs> If anyone wants an outlet, please hit me up. Um, my email is alex at tcolondon.com and hopefully we can kind of redress the balance slowly. Thank you. Um, do you want to just, just say your name again? And so people, oh yeah, yeah, or your email that people can just grab you at the end. Uh, my name is Alex King. Thank you. Yeah, you get it. <laughs> Ally. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you're right. And uh, I'm, just, I'm really glad uh, you sort of mentioned that. I know Teddy Cole talks a lot about the white savior industrial complex in a really uh, interesting and articulate way, um, especially in relation to how people, um, you know, how white journalists can often cover minority stories with this idea of, you know, the, the white hero. And I think that, you know, that's not to say that, obviously that's not to say that white journalists can't do, you know, great and nuanced journalism about immigrant communities and immigrant experience and global cultures. 
Um, but it's just, it's really important and encouraging to know that people are really aware of that. And I, and I know that, but not seeing lots of examples of it has made me bitter. And that's, yeah, that's cool. And I think that that's like really supportive and I hope that makes people feel really encouraged. Thank you. Any more questions? Don't be shy. Sorry, go on. Oh, yeah, yeah, go, go. Hey. Yeah, so this kind of deviates from the, the question of what are British values and accepts that diverse communities are a British value. So my question is to do with kind of a buzzword these days, thanks to a serial cafe in Tower Hamlets, gentrification. Mm -hmm. And the effect of gentrification on British values, where, er where in areas like Brixton and Moss Side comprise generally of these diverse communities, not very well off, are being uh, evicted. So in Brixton, there are traders who live under the British railways that are being evicted by British railways and invited to come back if they could pay triple the rent, which obviously they can't. So obviously, people who are moving into those places will be city workers. So there's kind of a passing off of British values for the highest bidder, in a way, because those places have appreciated in value thanks to these communities, and now they're being pushed out. Yeah. So my question is, yeah, how, how would gentrification affect British values? Um, I think gentrification is, uh, you know, <laughs> a very sinister way um, of kind of eradicating the best things about British values, which are, to me, some of the contributions from immigrant communities, which uh, is being commodified and sold off to the highest bidder, as you say. And I think that minority experience is quite often mass assimilated and sold off. Um, and we see that um, in, in the examples that you've said, in Brixton particularly, where there's a real lack of social housing and uh, you know, sort of local communities are priced out. These are all things that we're very keenly aware of. And I think that it's about um, taking that understanding and supporting groups like, for example, in Brixton, the London Brack Revs uh, are doing really good work um, in sort of counteracting that and I think supporting them and getting, you know, for me, they represent a kind of British values that I really want to get behind. So as much as gentrification will continue, has always and will always continue to eradicate for me what the best bits of Britain are, i.e. Um, immigrant contributions, there's always going to be a fight back and there's always going to be people that um, are responding in really positive ways and there's always going to be a London Black Revs and I think that that is, for me, like, that is the, the kind of story that I want to hook on, it's the kind of things that I want to support. Um, I think that, yeah, the way that London is changing is ultimately depressing but that's not the whole story and you can see it in the way that we talk about London club culture, you know, fabric is being sanitised, plastic people is gone, you know, cable is gone, London club culture is dead and it's saying, well, and I always just think, well, that's not true, you know. In immigrant communities, club culture is banging and it's because most people don't want to engage in them that they're not keenly aware um, of that in the same way that, you know, people were bemoaning the demise of a club culture, hey, um, of, of a club culture, you know, during, uh, you know, during the time of the West Indian diaspora bringing sound systems and, you know, everyone suddenly caught up to the fact that that music banged and then it became part of the mainstream. And so I think that it's about, 
I guess coming at it from a slightly more nuanced eye and saying where where is that where are the exciting things happening where are the exciting fightbacks happening that's what something I want to get behind and support. Really sorry, but we're being asked to wrap up. So perhaps I'm really sorry to yeah that you can't ask your questions, but maybe have a word with us after um, we finished up. Um, so yeah, mostly. Firstly, thank you to to you all, and thank you to Kieran. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you.